right. Well, good morning once again. And uh, can I have you all turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Now, if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on uh, Sunday morning. And uh, let me begin today's study the way I have for the last several weeks by telling you that we are only hours from the cross at this point in John's Gospel. It is probably somewhere between 11 o'clock and midnight. And we all know Jesus would be hanging on the cross by 9 o'clock the next morning. The evening began in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem where Jesus and his disciples uh, celebrated the Passover together. At the end of chapter 14, they left the upper room and began, to make, began making their way through the streets of Jerusalem guided by the light of the full moon. Passover always took place at the time of the full moon. Their destination being the Mount of Olives, where Jesus would spend several hours in prayer before being arrested and forced to endure a couple of mock trials, one religious and the other civil, before being murdered. As they are walking now through the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching a teaching that began in chapter 13 and would continue through chapter 16 when they finally reached the uh, mount called Olivet. We have been taking our time studying Jesus' discourse to his disciples since it constituted his final words uh, to them before his crucifixion. During this time, he is revisiting, reminding them of some of the most important lessons he had taught them over the course of of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. Remember, in just a short time, they would be taking up the mantle. They would be continuing on in the ministry that he had begun. Now, earlier in the evening, he had laid several bombshells on them. The first was that one of the disciples would betray him. The second was that Peter would deny the Lord not once but three times. And uh, the biggest one, I think, of all that Jesus laid on them was he was going away and he was leaving them, but where he was going, they couldn't go with him. Now, these revelations devastated them, of course, and caused their hearts to be deeply troubled. And Jesus understood that, and that's why he opened up chapter 14 with the words, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in, you believe in God, believe also in me. And from that point, he proceeds to give them a series of promises designed to comfort their hearts in the moment and to equip them for the difficult days ahead. The biggest promise he gave to them, which we have studied, the biggest promise he gave to them that evening was when he said he wasn't going to leave them alone. Yes, he was going away. Where he was going, they couldn't come with him. But he was not going to leave them alone like orphan children. He promised he would send to them another helper, the Holy Spirit, who would abide with them forever. You can check that out in chapter 14, verses 15 to 18. And so, guys, with all that as background, we come to John 16, verses 16 to 22, and a message I'm calling, When Sorrow Turns to Joy. Now, I'm just going to follow a very simple outline. Jesus' proclamation, the disciples' consternation, and then Jesus' clarification. So let's just start with Jesus' proclamation in verse 16 where he tells these guys, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, because I go 
to the Father. Now, please understand, these disciples at this point were not spirit-filled Christians. Now, they were saved under the old economy. They were believers. But at this point, they were not technically what we would call spirit-filled Christians. That wouldn't happen for about another two months uh, on the day of Pentecost. You can check that out in Acts chapter 2. Having said that, there was a lot of things that Jesus said to them that went over their heads, you might say. Okay, You see this all the way through the Gospels. You know, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Oh, he's upset we didn't bring bread. Why didn't you bring bread, Peter? Yeah, I know. I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the false teaching of the Pharisees and so on, right? Um, here's one prime example of him saying something and they just didn't understand. They didn't get it, okay? And, uh, of course, another big one was when he began to teach them in parables. And uh, you can read about that in Mark, excuse me, in Matthew 13. Uh, that kind of freaked them out. They had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, and he got him to explain a couple of the parables, which is good for all of us, because then we weren't guessing. We knew what the Lord was getting at, okay? So I guess in some ways, um, sometimes their cluelessness helps the rest of us, right? Um, but here he tells them something, and, and, and you know, basically the gist of it was, uh, in a little while I'm going away, you're not going to see me. In a little while you're going to see me. And they're like, what? Uh, what is he talking about? right? Um, I mean, they wanted to understand. They loved Jesus. They really wanted to understand when he said something to them. They knew it was important, right? Um, they really tried here, I believe, to understand what the Lord was saying, but their confusion gave way to consternation. Now, consternation is a confusion that leads to frustration. The frustration. In this case, frustration for not being able to understand what Jesus meant by his somewhat cryptic proclamation in verse 16. Again, in a little while you won't see me, and a little while you will see me. Now, this led the disciples to let their confusion... Now, remember, this has been going on for three and a half years. So, I mean, by this time, and he already sees going away, so now they're dealing with the frustration of, well, why can't we go with him? And then all of a sudden, you know, he dro drops this on them, and so they kind of let their confusion get the best of them. It's been building, okay? And here it produces some mild irritation and even, as I said, some consternation. Let's read verses 17 and 18. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? Uh, we don't know what he is saying. You can feel for these guys, right? They're just kind of beside themselves. I mean, of all the times in his ministry, they wanted to really understand what he is saying because it's, he just told me he's going away. This is important stuff. I mean, can you give us a little more? Now he says something that they don't quite understand. They're, they're a little frustrated. and we, we need to be patient with these guys. Um, they were confused and frustrated by what seemed to be the constant riddles. Jesus kept trying to communicate uh, truth to them through. Jesus even admitted himself he wasn't speaking plainly to these guys. In verse 25, it says, These things I have spoken to you 
in, a, in, a, in figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in, a figure, in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Why don't you just talk like that all the time? Why do we got to, you know, wade through all these riddles? Lord, you know we're not the sharpest pencils in the box. You picked us. You knew what you were getting into. Why can't you just be plain with us? Well, he had his reasons, and we'll talk about those more next time. But listen, the disciples were not the first, nor would they be the last of God's people to be confused by something somebody in the Bible tried to teach us uh, of spiritual truth, right? I mean, there are things in the Bible I still don't get, even though I've studied them for 40 years. When I try to figure out God's sovereignty and man's free will, I can't, I can't get that. How can they both be true? How can God be really sovereign and man be really free at the same time? My pastor used to say when he was studying the word as a young pastor, studying that very issue, at one point he got so frustrated he threw his Bible across the room and just said, God, I, I don't understand it. He said, the Lord spoke to my heart pretty clearly. He said, I'm not asking you to understand it. I'm just asking you to teach it. And so therefore, my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, said, they're like parallel rails of a train track. They're both true. They're both true things. And they don't really connect where you can figure them out completely. But what you do is you set your course right down the middle like a train on the tracks. And just understand, the Bible teaches both, therefore we have to just accept it, believe it, and when we see them face to face, a lot of things are going to be cleared up, okay? You, we'll understand a whole lot more. Now we see through a, like a, through a dirty window, right, Paul said, but then face to face. So right now I'm looking and I don't quite get a lot. I get the basics. That's all we need, really. It's just the, We know Jesus is Lord. He came down, God incarnate, became a man, died for our sins, three days later rose bodily from the grave, ascended back to his father, is coming again someday to establish a kingdom where we will never die, right? That's all we need to know, right? The rest of it, all right, it's in the word, and we want to understand the word, but if you know the basics, that's really all you need. But here, we're not the only ones. Um, I appreciate what the Apostle Peter, now this is Peter, who said in 2 Peter 3.16, he, he, he said that, you know, he's talking about Paul's writings. Now, Paul was a brilliant guy. He was a theologian, right? And so Peter mentions this in passing and says, you know, some things Paul has written in his epistles, they're hard to understand too. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm glad you said that. Because sometimes I think I'm a dummy when I read the word and don't get certain things. But Peter says, don't you? A lot of us didn't quite get all Paul said. But, you know, then as we prayed and, and let the Spirit of God lead us into all truth, we, you know, God reveals it. But, you know, when you pick up your Bible as a young believer, especially, pray that God will open up your understanding. Pray the Holy Spirit would lead you into all truth. And then read it. Accept what you understand. And what you don't yet understand, keep praying about. And the more you grow, the more God will reveal what he's saying, okay? 
Now, I say all this to say that if you don't understand some of the things that are considered controversial subjects in the Bible, you're, you're on solid ground. <clears throat> there are, with regard to this very passage, uh, Christ, Christian scholars, professors, uh, pastors, and other teachers today that still aren't quite sure what Jesus meant when he said these words in verse 16. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. The key to understanding this statement lies in correctly interpreting the two uses of the phrase, a little while. Most scholars and commentators pretty much agree on the meaning of the first, a little while. Beginning of verse 16, a little while, and you will not see me. One commentator put it this way, and I think he speaks for many of us who will agree with him. He says, and I quote, This first, a little while, speaks of how he, Jesus, was soon going to be arrested, and they would be scattered, his disciples, like sheep, and separated from Jesus. He'd be crucified and buried. He would be absent a little while, and they wouldn't see him because he would be placed in the tomb. All right? So I think most of us would probably agree that, yeah, that's what that first a little while is talking about. In a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. For a while, right? All right. He's going to be crucified, put in a tomb, so on. It's the second a little while where differences of interpretation come into play. Let me read to you again the second part of verse 16. And again, a little while, and you will see me. A little while you won't see me, a little while you will see me. Now, the first a little while, pretty straightforward. It's the second one that often uh, causes commentary. And I'm talking scholars. I'm talking very, very brilliant uh, commentators and all. They disagree. And usually what I will do is if we come to a controversial passage, I will read it, try to explain it best I can, and give you the more common interpretations. And then I'll let you pray about it and decide which one you think is the right one. Today I want to give to you the three main interpretations because I think all three of them are important. We'll come back to why in just a second. So there are three main views about the meaning of the last a little while. The first one we've already covered. Let me read it to you again. Well, kind of covered. Uh, it says the first interpretation believes that there is a reference to how, that this is a reference to how after Jesus was crucified, they would see him for a little while because his body would be, they, I'm sorry, they wouldn't see him for a little while because his body would be laid in the tomb. But then in a little while, yeah, three days, he would rise from the dead and they would see him again. The next interpretation believes that the second, a little while and you will see me, is speaking of Jesus' second coming. Now, those who hold to this view believe uh, this view primarily because Jesus used the illustration of a woman in, in labor in verse 21. And they, they pick up on that and they say, well, you see, that's the same language that he used in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Turn there, okay? And so they're comparing Jesus' words here with what he said in the Olivet Discourse, which forms their case for why they believe What's in view here in this a little while and you will see me is speaking of a second coming. 
So Matthew 24, and of course the context is, he has just told them he's going away. Um, and where he's going, basically again, they can't follow him. Um, and they wouldn't see him anymore until, he, until they said, Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. He leaves the temple area, crosses the Kidron Valley up in the Mount of Olives. He sits down by an olive tree somewhere. And some of his disciples come to him. And they asked him, they said, Lord, you know, when are going to be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? The end of the age in the Jewish mind was the end of the age of man's rebellion and sin and evil, which started in the Garden of Eden and would end with the coming of the Messiah to establish a glorious new age, the kingdom age. That's what they were. They expected him to set up the, ki the kingdom at any moment. They believed he was the Messiah, the king. And of course he was. They didn't understand that at his first coming, he came to die. His second coming, he will come to rule and establish the kingdom like he had promised. All right. So right now they're a little confused again. Uh, and they come to him, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they say, Lord, you know, what is going to be the signs of your coming? You're not, we're not going to see you until you, you know, you're not going to see me anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, you're going away. Well, what are going to be the signs that you're coming back? You're, you're soon return, and, and, and you're going to establish your kingdom. It's interesting that the first thing the Lord Jesus says to them in verse Four is take heed that no one what deceives you take heed that no one deceives you the time preceding christ's return to the planet earth is going to be a time of unprecedented spiritual worldwide deception now we're studying about that uh, in revelation on wednesday night you can go online listen to some of the studies uh, or you can just join us that would be awesome but um, but but this is what he tells. Then he goes on from there, verse 5, and says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Listen, verse 8. Very important. All these are the beginning of sorrows. But the Greek could be translated, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus, like in the seven-year tribulation period, he broke it into two parts. You see it in Matthew if you study it carefully enough. You see it definitely in Revelation. But he broke the tribulation period, seven years into two parts. He called the first part the beginning of sorrows, likening it to a woman who is just entering into labor, right? A woman just entering into labor, well, the contractions are kind of, they're not very intense at that point, and they're spaced far apart. That's how the tribulation is going to start. God's going to bring judgments, but they're not going to be cataclysmic judgments at first. And they're going to be spaced out. Why? Why is the Lord going to bring a judgment and then wait a good while? Because he wants to give people time to repent. Some people have got, will be so hard-hearted and dull of hearing by this time, God has got to speak to them by shouting. I think C.S. Lewis said that. God speaks to us in our uh, pleasures, shouts to us in our pain. Sometimes people are so dull of hearing that God, because he loves them, will put them through a little hell right now to keep them from ultimate eternal hell someday. 
I mean, he'd rather just speak to your heart and say, I love you, come to me, accept my son. That he, he, that's how we would rather get people saved. But the Bible says, you know, some save with compassion, the others save with what? Fear, right? Holding their feet, as it were, to the fires of hell to scare them. Well, I don't want to scare people into heaven. I don't care what we do to get them into heaven. Love them into heaven, scare them into heaven. I don't care. Just keep them out of hell as much as possible, all right? But these are the beginnings of sorrows, Jesus said. Now, as you come into the second half of the tribulation period, he likens that in Matthew 24, verse 21, to a woman in hard labor. He calls it great tribulation. Because now the judgments are going to ramp up. Now they are going to become more and more intense, cataclysmic. And they're going to be spaced um, much closer together. And like a woman in labor, as she gets closer and closer to the child's birth, the, the contractions are coming uh, very powerfully and right up on top of each other until it, it feels like she's not going to even make it, and suddenly, boom, the child is born, and there is peace. Just like when Jesus finally comes. All the cataclysms, all the judgments, earth reeling to and fro from one cataclysmic judgment after another, and suddenly... Here comes Jesus bursting through the clouds, riding a white horse with his church, riding white horses and the holy angels of God all coming to the earth and he establishes a kingdom of peace and the, the kingdom is birthed is the idea, okay? So that's why a, a, a group of scholars and, and, and other teachers believe that what's in view is the second coming in what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 16. The third interpretation is interesting in that it holds to the view that the second, a little while, and you, speaking of, to those disciples, you will see me, refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You say, well, how does the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost relate to the words of Jesus when he told these men, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? How does that I mean, you know, how does that relate to the Holy Spirit? Jesus is saying, I'm, you're going to see me, right? How does that relate to the Holy Spirit? Well, turn back to chapter 14 of John's Gospel. Now, remember at this point, they're still in the upper room. What he's just told them, he's going away and they can't go with him. Their hearts are devastated, Right? And so the context is, look, while I'm gone, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father. The idea is that after I go to the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend back to the Father, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, verse 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And verse 18 is the pivotal verse. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So you have to understand something. Jesus was the first helper, Greek parakletos, one who came alongside to help them, prepare them, equip them for the ministry they would eventually take over. That Jesus began. He came alongside them physically, visibly, right? 
He said, I'm going away, but I'm going to pray the Father. He's going to send you back another parakletos, another helper, another one who will come alongside you, but not just alongside you, will eventually indwell you, the Holy Spirit. But it will be me, because God is a trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are all together one God. Not three gods, they're one God. So when Jesus said the Holy Spirit is coming, he will fill you, which means I'm coming. You understand what he was saying? Now those who hold to this third interpretation um, are, are many good scholars. I, one of my favorite commentators is Warren Worsby. And Warren Worsby said, um, he said Jesus was speaking primarily about his return to the Father. He said, because I go to the Father, verse 16, uh, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 16. This ties in with what he said earlier in John 16, verse 10, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The disciples did not live to see the return of Christ, but they, uh, but they did die and they did see him when they arrived in heaven. They saw him, of course. In comparison to eternity, the time that the church has been awaiting the Lord's return has really been but a little while. Why is that? Well, Peter tells us one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. It's only been a little while since Jesus went back to heaven and he's coming again, we believe, very soon, right? Um, in fact, the phrase a little while is used in this very sense in Hebrews 10, verse 37, for yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry, end quote. So there are many good in, uh, scholars and, and commentators that uh, believe that this is what Jesus had in mind, that the Holy Spirit would come after he ascended back to the Father, Jesus did, and um, of course when the Spirit of God came, they would have great joy. So listen, you have Jesus' proclamation, the disciples' consternation. Let's finish with the Lord's explanation or excuse me, clarification, which begins with the explanation. Look at verses 19 and 20. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now guys, I believe, that all three interpretations, all three of the interpretations we just mentioned are valid, are valid. And in some ways, I think Jesus probably had all three in mind when he spoke these words to his disciples that evening. Now, usually I don't feel this way. Usually I feel there's one interpretation that is the right one. Uh, we try to just decide, well, which one is that? What fits the context more completely, Right? But here I'm really of the mindset that all three of these views are really correct. All right, all three are, are really correct. I believe the disciples' joy started with Jesus' resurrection from the dead, right? I believe that same joy was ramped up when he returned to his Father, and the Holy Spirit was sent back on the day of Pentecost, who indwelt all of them and gave them the power to go into all the world and continue the work that Jesus began in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you this. I don't know about you, but I get the most joy when God allows me to witness to somebody and they get saved. 
I mean, you talk about joy. Isn't Jesus talking about joy here? Your joy is going to be complete. There's no greater joy than, than God the Spirit uh, indwelling us and, and coming upon us to share the gospel in a way that there's power. Jesus said this uh, before he ascended back to the Father in Acts chapter 1. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. The Greek word is dunamis. We get our word dynamic, dynamite from that Greek word. You're going to receive dynamic power to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then under the uttermost parts of the earth. What joy these men received when they began to see the gospel spread and churches started as people in pagan areas got saved. But the greatest joy that they or us would know would be upon his return when he would establish a kingdom that will never end. A kingdom that there would be true righteousness and peace. A kingdom where, you know, as I was telling first service, I have never longed in my life for the return of Jesus Christ like I long for him today. Why? Because everywhere you look, there's corruption. There is evil. People calling good evil and evil good. Places you can't even walk outside your door without somebody robbing you or trying to hurt you. Little kids can't, uh, on a nice summer's day, play outside without the fear of being shot in the head with a stray bullet from some gangbanger. I long for the day when Jesus comes and takes over. Where he will be a righteous king. And he won't run for office every five, four or five years. He'll be on his throne forever, right? And in those days, the Bible says, when Jesus is on the throne on the earth, the millennial kingdom, in those days, every man will be able to sit under his own fig tree and be unafraid. They won't have swords and spears anymore. Those will be beaten into plowshares and pruning hooks. And mankind will no longer study nor conduct war anymore. What a time that is coming. What, what joy. What joy to be able to walk the streets. And, and, and you know everybody. You know? The whole world is going to be like little, like small town America. You know? My sister used to live in a small town in Northern California. And in, in, in her community, people would break into your house while you're at church. They'd come home and find that somebody had come into their house. They didn't take anything. They left tomatoes, stuff on the kitchen table. They broke into to leave things. That's the kind of world I want to live in. <laughs> and that's coming. That's coming. Now then Jesus, after the explanation, moves to give us the illustration. Verse 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she is, has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, <laughs> what does the old saying say? Fools tread in where angels fear to go. I realize that I'm in the tenuous position of trying as a man to explain to mothers the pain surrounding childbirth. I get that. 
But it's not the actual pain associated with childbirth that I think we need to focus on. It's the principle that Jesus is communicating through the process of childbirth. I want you to listen careful, carefully to me, all right? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is here stating a principle. Now, there are many truths and principles in God's Word. Some of them are right on the surface. You don't even have to dig like you would looking for a buried treasure. It's just on the surface. Just there it is, right? You just grab it and go. But often, some of the greatest principles, some of the greatest treasures in God's Word are looking at us, up at us from the page, but we're too busy speed reading the Word than to really take the time to meditate on what we're reading. Did I tell you guys this, or was it first service? Did I forget? I was watching a debate years ago. And between two Christian groups, it was four guys all together, two and two. And it came out that one of the guys reads his Bible once a day. The whole thing. He's, he's able to speed read the Bible in its entirety every day. Now, I'm sure there are people that can do that. I'm not one of them. I'm a very slow reader, which forces me to think about what I'm reading. But even if you could speed read the Bible, why would you want to do that? What are you really getting out of it? Except the haughtiness to say, I read my Bible, the whole thing every day. I wasn't impressed with this guy's spirituality for reading the Bible every day, but okay. Um, there is a principle here. that I believe is the very soul of what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Remember he said you can't be one of my disciples unless you deny yourself, take up the cross and follow, take up your cross and follow me, right? Guys, this is a principle that no true believer in Christ can escape. Jesus certainly didn't, and he did not, not that he wanted to. He went through it. He lived it out. It's a principle that no true believer in Christ can escape because it defines what being a Christian, which the word means a Christ follower, what that truly means. To ignore this principle or to be ignorant of it is not to understand what the Christian life is really all about and the purpose God has for all believers in living it for his glory. Let me state the principle taken from the illustration that Jesus gave of a woman in labor and then the birth of her child, and then we'll apply it, apply it into our lives, okay? Here's the principle, and again, I believe, not only a fundamental principle, I think it could be the fundamental principle of the Christian life, practically speaking, okay? Here it is. God brings joy into our lives, not through substitution, but through transformation. Let me say it again. Here's the principle. 
that God brings joy into our lives not by substitution, but by transformation. And his illustration of a woman giving birth makes this clear. All right? In childbirth, God does not substitute something else to relieve the mother's pain. Instead, he uses the very baby that caused the pain to be the very instrument that brings her great joy. Again, it's not the principle of substitution, but the principle of transformation that's at work. Let me read to you what one pastor and author said about this. I think he nailed it. This, I think this is absolutely true. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, Every parent knows what it, is like, what it is like to have an unhappy child because a toy is broken or a playmate has gone home. The parent can do one of two things. Substitute something else for the broken toy or absent friend or transform the situation into a new experience for the unhappy child. If mother always gets a new toy for the child each time a toy is broken, that child will grow up expecting every problem to be solved by substitution. If mother always phones another playmate and invites him or her over, the child will grow up ex expecting people to come to his rescue whenever there is a crisis. The result, is e the result either way is a spoiled child who will not be able to cope with reality. The way of substitution for solving problems is the way of immaturity. The way of transformation is the way of faith and maturity. We cannot mature emotionally or spiritually if somebody is always replacing our broken toys. Jesus did not say that the mother's sorrow, her pain, was replaced by joy, but that the sorrow was transformed into joy. The same baby that caused the pain also caused the joy. And so it is in the Christian life. God takes seemingly impossible situations, adds the miracle of his grace, and transforms the trial into triumph and sorrow into joy. Joseph's brother sold him as a slave, and Potiphar put him into prison as a criminal. But God transformed that hopeless situation of defeat into victory. What Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God used for good. The same situation that brought such sorrow into Joseph's life was the very thing God used to bring great joy. Yeah, when he was elevated to the place of prime minister in, in, the, in the whole kingdom of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. You can read that story in Genesis 37 and forward. King Saul's murderous pursuits of David only made him more a man of God and helped produce the Psalms that encourage our hearts every day. Think about that. How many of us take comfort in the Psalms? How many of us going through a rough time open the Bible almost instinctively to the book of Psalms because there's such comfort there? Those Psalms came out of David's pain. Somebody has said for every sorrow, there's a, for every sigh, there is a psalm. Because God allowed David, and David wasn't the only one who wrote the book of Psalms. He wrote about half of the psalms. All right? But the point is, and think about John the, the Apostle. Uh, what, 95 years old, they banished him to the Isle of Patmos, nothing but a rock jutting up out of the Aegean Sea. But it was on that isle that Jesus met him and gave to John the greatest revelation of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Without John's experience on Patmos, we wouldn't have that book. The author says even Jesus took the cross, a symbol of defeat and shame, and transformed it into a symbol of victory and glory. 
And he ends with this. The Lord knows what tomorrow is going to bring. That's why he says, as difficult as this might seem, what you're going through right now, it's absolutely necessary that I put you through the pain of today to prepare and perfect you for the work of tomorrow, end quote. And that leads us to our application, right? The application. Verse 22. Jesus said to these guys, Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And of course, in the short term, the Lord was speaking of the cross and his death on the cross. That was going to be the source of their great sorrow. To see their Lord hanging on that cross and dying a torturous death. And so he was speaking of the sorrow they were going to experience very shortly as Jesus went to the cross. But then they would see him not long after that, three days later, uh, as he would step from that tomb alive, right? And the disciples would come to understand the very cross, the very thing that brought them sorrow, was the very thing that had now brought them great joy. Because without Jesus going to the cross, none of us could go to heaven. None of us could be saved. So the very thing that brought pain and sorrow into Jesus' life was the very thing that God used to transform that experience into the joy of being able to save sinners because of what he did on Calvary. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, right? And Jesus even said in Hebrew, it says of Jesus in Hebrews 12, verse 2, we all need to look to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, saving sinners, he endured the cross, despising the shame. We don't, we don't enjoy the, the, the adversity. We don't enjoy the pain. But we do look at it as a way, what is God doing here? I know he's got all things are working together for good. So why is God allowing me to go through this very, very painful circumstance? He must have something in mind. He must want to use this pain in my life and transform it into something very powerful and positive. Guys, Jesus had said to these very men earlier that they couldn't be his disciples unless, again, they took up their crosses and followed him. And now, just hours before he went to the cross, he elaborates on what it meant, he meant by giving them, again, this fundamental principle of the Christian life. But this principle will only help you deal with difficult and even devastating circumstances of life if, listen, you're mature enough, if you're mature enough, to see that the whole purpose of the Christian life is not for God to fix our broken toys. It's not substitution. The whole goal of the Christian life is to allow us to go to the cross in a metaphorical way, suffer painful situations, adversity, and then look to God to use those that we might bless others through the pain we've endured that we might help others who are going through similar circumstances. That, folks, that is the definition of ministry. God transforming painful circumstances into opportunities to be used by him 
to help others in their moments of suffering adversity? Uh, turn quickly as we as we bring this to a close to Second Corinthians chapter one. And I'll give you the what I think is the greatest passage on ministry, practically speaking, in the in the entire Bible. Okay? For second did I say first Corinthians? I meant second Corinthians, I'm sorry. Second Corinthians chapter one. Again, how God uses painful situations, circumstances in our lives and transforms them into opportunities for us to be used by Him to help others, turning our tragedy into triumph and so on, our sorrow into joy. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolations also abound through Christ. What is Paul saying? The more we go through painful circumstances, the more we are equipped, and the more God will use us to help others who are going through similar circumstances. That is the definition of ministry. Uh, uh, going through difficult times, looking to God, who brings you through it, and through it, he teaches you about his faithfulness, his love, his, his attributes. And then brings people into your life that you can minister to. Look, again, I was telling first service, I've never been an alcoholic. I've ministered to alcoholics. And people listen because I'm giving them the word of God, right? But it's so much more powerful when somebody who was an alcoholic gets saved, is delivered, and now is able to minister to people who are still alcoholics by telling them, look, what you need is Jesus. He delivered me. He saved me. He set me free. I mean, that's a message that's a little more powerful, isn't it? Coming from somebody who has been there than coming from somebody who has never experienced that. That's why God does it. He, he, he allows us to go through these things, not because he enjoys watching us suffer, what he does want is to use us for his glory, that we might have an abundant entry into the kingdom of heaven. Look, let me close with a story. This principle of transformation and what Satan intends for evil, God turns around and uses for good. Again, this is not a principle that a carnal Christian is going to rejoice over. Carnal Christians, the kind that are on TV telling you that God wants you rich, and never have a bad day in your life, and drive the best car, and live in the fanciest house. They have no clue about this. They would vehemently attack me as being some kind of a false teacher. Because I'm trying to tell people that, look, God allows suffering in our lives, and there's a reason for it. Because they're all about making money, and being successful and all that stuff, right? So carnal Christians have no idea about any of this. They don't connect to any of this, what we're talking about. And after I tell you this story, depending on you, how you receive it, might indicate if you're a spirit-filled Christian or a carnal Christian. Let me tell you this. I've told this story before, 
for the sake of the new folks, and let me tell you, uh, with regard to this subject, I don't think I know another story as powerful as the one I'm about to share. My wife and I know the young lady that this story revolves around. Her name is Erica Fye. Erica Fye. And Erica, this is going back now years. Cindy knows the family a lot better than I do. Uh, but they're a Christian family. I think they lived in Yonkers, might still live in Yonkers, New York, and um, love the Lord, are involved in their church. And they had at least two daughters, Erica and another daughter, I forgot her name, maybe others, but uh, the one daughter walked away from God and got into the occult, witchcraft. Erica stayed faithful to God. She loved the Lord, right? And she was mature beyond her years. I forgot how old she was when this happened. She had to be between 14 and 18 because it happened during her high school years where she's gotten off the bus and she's walking home one day where five gangbangers jumped her and gang-raped her. Five gangbangers jumped her and raped her. If she had been a carnal Christian, I'm sure she would have written off God, Christianity, as nothing but nonsense. Because if God was real, he never would have allowed this to happen to me. But Erica was a mature young Christian gal. And she knew all things work together for good, even if we don't understand what good is being worked out. I'm a child of God. I'm called according to his purpose. And you know what? I believe that God is something in this. They, they caught the guys, and they were tried and, I think, imprisoned. But Erica forgave them. And because of the grace and forgiveness she exhibited, her sister was so impressed, she came back to the Lord. And she got saved. Well, then God began to lay on Erica's heart as she finished high school. She had a heart to go to Africa to reach the African people for Christ. And so she applied with the minister we support, far-reaching. And after the training, they sent her over to Africa. And she had a particular tribe, I forgot the name, that she felt led to minister to. Now, here's the thing. You didn't just join this tribe. You had to be initiated into it. And part of the initiation was to drink a bowl that had animal blood, urine, maggots, and I forgot what else in this little brew. You had to drink it, otherwise you couldn't be a member of the tribe. There were three people that day. First two drank this bowl, and they vomited. They couldn't hold it down. Erica prayed, God, I believe you have called me to be a missionary to these women the women of this tribe. I need your grace, Lord. I can't do this. And by the grace of God, she was able to drink that bowl of liquid, and she didn't throw up. And she became a member of that tribe. And right away as she started ministering to the women of this tribe, she realized that they were routinely gang-raped. It was almost a cultural norm. The men of this tribe just routinely would gang rape women. Obviously, didn't have a very high view of women, right? And so as Erica is ministering to them, now she shares with them what she had gone through. And don't you know that because she had been gang raped and she understood what they were going through, they opened up their hearts to her. I mean, they just loved her. 
she had a connection with them nobody else could have had because she had been there. And God used her in such a powerful way to bring so many of these women to Jesus Christ. Now that's a pretty extreme illustration of what we're talking about. I'm just saying this is what we're talking about. The very thing that brought her sorrow and pain, the rape, gang rape, was the very thing that God transformed into something that she was able to use to help these other women find comfort in Christ. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, that you would even think God would use something like that. You are not at a place in your Christian walk that God wants you to be at. This is a principle, as I said, that only spirit-filled, mature Christians can understand. Not that we're looking forward to something like this in our own lives. But we better be ready for what might be coming. And if some bad stuff starts coming, we better not be starting to cry out to God, God, fix my broken toy. We better, by his grace, embrace it and say, God, what do you have for me in this? Paul called himself in prison an ambassador in what? Chains. He embraced it and used it. I love how Philippians opens up. Hey, all the, all the servants in Caesar's palace say, hi, we got a nice little church group going here, man. Everyone's excited. I couldn't have reached these folks unless I had been thrown into the dungeon here. This is great. I got a prison ministry I never thought I'd have. Paul embraced it, and God used it. So may God give us grace to embrace what's coming. And one other thing, and I'll close. Years ago, when I was going to teach on this topic, I think for the first time really, as I was finishing going over my notes before I would pack everything up and come to church, the Lord laid on my heart, tell Eric a five story. Now, okay, I wrote down Eric a five story in the bottom of my notes. But I wasn't sure the Lord really had spoken that to me, but it sounded like it was him, right? So I come to church, and sitting on my chair, there was a letter, an envelope. Now, we didn't get much mail over there because that really wasn't our mailing address, but sometimes people would go online and see that's where we're meeting, so they would send stuff there, right? Usually it was just junk mail. So I see this letter sitting on my chair before service starts. I, I turn it over, and guess who it was from? Erica Fi. I opened it up. Thought about confirmation from God, right? I opened it up, and at the top of the letter, you know what it said? Clay in his hands. And she went on to explain what was going on in Africa. We support Erica. Clay in his hands. You have to understand, if you go through these adversities, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because he does love you. And we are all just clay in his hands. And he is forming us and shaping us for eternity. And wants to use us right now for his glory. May God give us grace. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great grace. 
And Lord, we ask that you would be with us. Give us grace for anything that's coming in the future that might be very difficult. As our leaders seem bent and determined on destroying this country one way or another. But Lord, it's opening up doors of opportunity. Many people are scared. They're frightened. There's a lot of uncertainty in the, of the future, which is causing many to be open, more open to you than maybe they've ever been in their lives. Lord, this is a great opportunity. Give us the grace to pursue it and not run from it and not ask you to substitute happiness for where there's some pain, but to embrace it, allow you to transform it and use the very pain that brought the, the sorrow to be the very thing that brings great joy as you use our pain to minister to others. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.